So has anyone ever asked you this question? Do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? Right? We're all kind of confronted with that at certain times. There's certain situations where there's good news and bad news and we're asked, do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? Four out of five Americans say when they're confronted with that question, they prefer the bad news before the good news, which kind of makes sense. I can see why that is. If a lot of times, if we know there's going to be good news or bad news, it's better to take bad news first because we have a hope that the good news will counteract that or leave us on a better note. We're in a series going through the book of Romans. In our text this morning, Paul is laying out the bad news. And the reason he's doing that is because the book of Romans is an expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word gospel means good news. And so he's explaining this thing called the gospel because the group of people he's talking to come from very different backgrounds and, and they're new in this thing called Christianity. They don't know a whole lot about it. And he's saying this thing, the gospel, this good news, is the most important thing in all of Christianity. It's the centerpiece. It's what separates us from every other religion and thought uh, philosophy out there. It's the good news. And so he's laying that out. But in order to have the good news, we have to know the bad news. We have to know why this is good news. And this morning, we're going to be right in the thick of all the things that Paul describes to show us why we need good news. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 1 or turn it on to Romans chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 18. If you have a journal that we've uh, made available for this series, you can use that as well. Um, in this text, we're going to see three big questions about the bad news. Three big questions about the bad news. There's a lot of times where people who give their lives to Jesus Christ, who become Christians... I hear it all the time. It wasn't until they were tired of the bad news, they are tired of how their life was lived apart from Christ, that they came to the good news. And so Paul is addressing and explaining here what life is like before Jesus. He's describing life before God enters into your heart through the Savior, your Savior, Jesus Christ. Three big questions about the bad news. Look at verse 18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The first question we see here is, what is the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is a concept that we're going to see throughout the book of Romans and throughout this passage, so it's good for us to have some sort of understanding about it. Many have a hard time with this concept. We must remember that God's wrath is not some wild, knee-jerk, out-of-control emotion of rage. Sometimes when we hear wrath, that's what we picture. The Old Testament says that God is slow to anger. And that is true. He's slow to anger. But it doesn't mean he never feels anger. And it doesn't mean that he is okay with sin. God's wrath is the precise controlled and punitive response to evil and sin. It's the precise controlled 
and punitive response to evil and sin apart from Jesus Christ. God's wrath is his righteous and just retribution, retribution towards sin. The wrath of God is provoked in God. It's not his essence. The Bible says God is love. That is his essence. But he is provoked to wrath when he sees sin and evil in the world because he's just and he's true. This verse says that God's wrath is being revealed. Notice it's present tense. It's being revealed because it is the ongoing wrath against current sin and evil, according to scholars. But there's also another dimension to it. It's a taste of the future judgment that is to come. When Jesus comes and returns, he's going to set up a new heavens and a new earth. But before he does that, the Bible tells us, and we looked at this when we were going through the book of Revelation, there will be a great judgment. There will be a final judgment. So this wrath is a current pouring out of the evil and sin in our world, but it's also an inauguration of sorts. God's wrath is a righteous wrath. God's anger is a holy anger. And we should tremble at the wrath of God. It should cause us to thank Jesus for his blood that saves us from the wrath of God that we just sang about. When you become a Christian, we use this word, you are saved, or you have salvation. Well, what are you saved from? We've covered this in the past, but it's good to review. First, you are saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. This is called justification. When you come to Christ and you surrender your life to him, you repent and you believe and you turn to him and say, I want to make you my Savior and Lord, you are justified in that moment. Boom. It's a one-time act. You are declared righteous, saved from the penalty of sin. And then from that point on, you begin this process where you're being made more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. It's, it's not a perfect process because we're imperfect in this state, but you are being sanctified or to be made holy. This is called sanctification. It's not a one-time thing. It's a process throughout your life as a Christian. And then that day comes when Christ will return and at that moment, you will be saved from the presence of sin forever. You'll no longer sin. You'll have a glorified body. So when you are saved, you are saved from all, you have all three of these aspects are going on. All three of these aspects are part of salvation. The penalty part in the first one, where you are saved from the penalty of sin, that's God's wrath. You are saved from the wrath of a holy God, the just punishment, the punitive, controlled, precise action of God for sin and evil. When you're a Christian and you give your life to Jesus, the blood of Jesus covers you and you are saved from that wrath. This should cause us to be thankful. So let's look at, continue on. The end of verse 18, uh, those who suppress this truth by their wickedness verse 19 to 20, since what may have been known to God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
This causes us to go to our second question. What in the world is causing God's wrath? Paul is beginning to explain why God is reacting in wrath. And the first thing he wants to do, the first thing he wants to lay on the table is that no one is without excuse. No one can say, well, I never knew there was God. There was nothing in my life that caused me to look to a God. He's saying there is no excuse because there's enough revelation in creation and enough revelation in a conscience, as theologians say, to cause us to search out God. When you look up in the sky and you see the stars, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. When we look at nature around us, we see how things operate and we see that there has to be a God to create this. There has to be something that causes us to search. Theologians also talk about our conscience, where we have a sense of what is right and wrong. These things are what theologians call general revelation. General revelation means there's enough revealed in creation and conscience to know that God exists that could cause us to search out God. However, this revelation, general revelation, is not enough to save you. It's not enough to give you that salvation we talked about before. You can't just walk in the woods and all of a sudden you're Christian and saved. You can't just look up in the sky and see the stars and you marvel at it and all of a sudden that experience makes you a Christian. In order to be a Christian, you need something more. General revelation points us to God, but it's not enough to save us. In order to save us, we need what's called special revelation. Special revelation is the gospel, this thing we're talking about, the good news. Special revelation is the words of scripture and Jesus himself that allows us to be saved. You need the gospel explained to you. You need to know who Jesus is and respond in order to be saved. So Paul is laying out here this argument that throughout the history, God has revealed himself in nature and in conscience so that no human being has an excuse. There's enough revelation to seek after God. But the thing is, they don't do that. And so things begin to spiral. Look at 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. We see this downward spiral with humanity apart from Christ blows off God. They don't recognize him. They don't notice him. And they begin to participate in what's called idolatry. The worshiping of idols, verse 23 says, they exchanged, meaning they substituted one for the other. Pastor and author Tim Keller says, idolatry is looking to something other than God to give you what only God can give. It's looking to something other than God to give you only what 
God can give. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. That we're constantly making idols and worshiping these things that we're trying to get what we need from God from these things. Certain idols can be anything that we worship higher than God. Can involve money or sex or approval or achievement or power, family, freedom, and a host of other things. And these things could actually be good when rightly placed in our lives, in second place in having God first. But these things and many others too easily become first in our lives. And we knock God off the throne of our heart and we put this on there. And that's the sin of idolatry, where we worship something created. And verse 24 has a very scary phrase in it that we say a few times. The phrase is that God gave them over. God gave them over. This means God is delivering them over to the results of their life apart from God. He's delivering them over to the life of impurity that they chose for themselves. And verse 25 says that they worshipped created things instead of the creator. You never want to worship anything that is created. Only the creator. God gave them over. And then it continues to spiral. Look at verses 26 and 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul singles out a sin here. He singles out the sin of homosexuality for a reason. First, he singles it out among women. Then he singles it out among men. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to paint a picture of what he's going to call natural and unnatural. And he's using that as an example. And he's explaining that before sin entered the world, when God created the world, he, everything he did in his creation was what God would refer to as natural. And then sin entered the world, and human beings looked at God's ways and said, I don't agree with that. I want to change that, and I'm going to do something different. And he calls that unnatural. See, sometimes we say our sinful impulses are just natural, and we have to react on that. This was different. God was saying, no, no, no. When I created it, I created a natural way to live. But when human beings look at it and don't like it, they create their own world in which the unnatural rules over the natural. Now, I understand these are controversial passages. And as a preacher, my job here, my calling here as your pastor is to teach you what this book says as closely as I can. That's my job. I'm a, I'm a herald. I didn't write this. But my job is to be faithful to tell you what this says. And so that's what I want to do here. Many in our culture find these verses offensive, unacceptable, and some Christians have accommodated them or revised them or changed them, but there's no going around when you see this in the original language and otherwise. What Paul is teaching here is that these actions are sinful. Acts of homosexuality should be avoided by disciples of Jesus Christ. Acts 
of homosexuality should be avoided by disciples of Jesus Christ. And I stress that word acts because I want to give a pastoral word here before I continue in the text. There's a difference between temptation and sin. There's a difference between temptation and sin. And to be tempted is not to sin. To commit a sin is sin. And we see that because Jesus was tempted in every way but without sin. If temptation is a sin, then Jesus had sin because Jesus was tempted in every way. So there's this difference that we have to understand. There are people who are Christian who are tempted in same-sex attraction. And they don't compromise what they read here. They say, I'm tempted to to move into same-sex attraction acts, but I'm not. I'm going to live a life of celibacy, and I'm going to live in this temptation, and I'm not going to act on it. And that temptation may go away for them, or it may stay for a very long time. But because they want to follow Jesus and be disciples of Jesus, and they believe what the Bible says, they have made a choice to live in purity before God, even though they have this temptation. For such a people, the church needs to make room and bring them into fellowship and friendship. We have to do that. There are two great resources on this topic that I'd highly recommend that are written by seminary professors, theologians, who live in what I just described. They would say that they are same-sex attracted, but they believe in all that God says, and so they're living a life that honors God in the midst of it, and their stories are compelling. One is Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury, and the other one is Holy Sexuality in the Gospel by Christopher Yuan. I highly recommend this if you're curious about this topic, which many are. The reasons for same-sex attraction are complex and involve brokenness, but we must always minister to people graciously, lovingly, and humbly. But Paul is also clear To act on those attractions is a sin, and it offends God. We see at least three types of people when it comes to Christianity. We see people who are mature in their faith, who stand in temptation, who fight temptation. You can't escape temptation in our world today as a Christian. And you take the word of God in prayer and you fight that temptation. Then you have people who are newer in their faith, or what the Bible would say, spiritually immature. And when they face temptation, sometimes they are able to overcome it, but sometimes they cave. And sometimes all of us cave. But this immature side, it's almost like they cave more than they overcome. And then you have those who are in spiritual rebellion, who say, I don't care what this says, I'm going to live however I want. Our response to all three people is different. Our response to all three people, the Bible gives us wisdom. There's a spectrum here. And we have to be wise about how we approach this. Even if you look at just the people in rebellion who say, I'm going to live however I want. The Bible has a lot of different things on how we respond to these people depending on what level of rebellion they're at. Paul says, for some who are in that spot, you are to... Be wise of how you live among them. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Win them over by how you live. Come alongside them and win them to Christ. Other places of people in rebellion who are just 
set on destruction, Paul says, have nothing to do with these people. Don't let them in your church. And here's the thing. Spiritual immaturity and spiritual rebellion look a lot alike. And so as pastors and leaders of the church, we have to be wise and discerning about how God would have us respond to people in these camps. But here's the thing. All three of these camps, the answer to all three is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to all three is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we approach these matters, we can't compromise what God's word clearly says, but also we hold to it with compassion and love and kindness. In fact, without hating evil and sin, we diminish our ability to love. The way I like to put it is this. Our love is not dishonest. We don't hide things of the truth just in the name of love and say we're not going to talk about those things because that's kind of offensive. Our love is not dishonest and our truth is not mean. We lovingly lay out what God's word says. And the good news is, from a life of any sin, there is mercy and forgiveness and transformation. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, no men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's people who are habitually set on that's who I am. And I'm not going to listen to anything God says. And then this next sentence is amazing. God says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, every single one of us who are Christians today can look at our life before we became Christians and find ourselves somewhere in that list. Every single one of us. That's what some of you were. But Jesus Christ in his grace and mercy saves us. You see, when we read texts like that and we read texts like this, as soon as we think that's not about us, but that's about somebody else, we've missed the point completely. As soon as we start in our minds, okay, Dan's talking about, I'm, he's talking about that person, that person, that person. And I'm not just talking about this sermon. I'm talking about any sermon you hear in here. If you immediately default to someone else and you skip over yourself, we've missed the point completely. However, there is a potential pitfall in looking at these verses in the book of Romans. The pitfall is because homosexuality is such a controversial topic, one looks at these verses to look at that and they miss the point of the passage. Homosexuality is a sin like any other sin. The Bible does not have positive things to say about it, but homosexuality is not the main point of this passage. Paul is using that sin in order to teach us something bigger. Paul is using the sin of homosexuality as an example to show people that from the time human beings rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden... Human beings have been declaring ever since, God, your ways of doing life are backwards and primitive, and we ourselves know what's best to live. We know how to live this life. 
And we still do this today. And in doing so, we move from what God called natural in creation, the way he created things, and we move to what is unnatural, doing what we declare as human beings is best. You see, the main point Paul is making here is sinful human beings think and act like they know better than God. Sinful human beings, apart from Jesus Christ, think and act that they know better than God. And that is an arrogance and a pride that causes God to be provoked towards wrath. That's his point. And Paul sets this up beautifully. And we miss something in this text so easily. I missed it until I started looking at it. I'm sure a lot of you missed it. We miss something in this text that the original audience in Rome would say, ah, I know exactly what Paul is doing. He's talking about creation and how we have changed creation in our own thinking and adapted the sin of idolatry and worship the creature and not the creator. There's this chart that you can see in the Romans chapter 1. Paul wrote Romans chapter 1. He knew really well Genesis 1. The people he's talking to knew really well Genesis 1. And as Paul's teaching what he's teaching in Romans 1, their mind would say, oh, he's going back and pulling things from Genesis 1. They would make that clear right away. In verse 23, he talks about human. Genesis 1.26 talks about human. 23 talks about the image. Genesis 1.26 talks about the image. Same verse, he talks about resembling. Genesis 1 talks about likeness. Birds to birds, livestock to animals, creeping things to creeping things, male to men, female to women. He's paralleling the creation account in Genesis 1, and his original audience would have picked up on it like that. Because he's making this point. God created us to live in a certain way. And apart from Christ, our natural tendency is to rebel against God in his ways and how he created. And when we do that, it causes God to respond in wrath. The bigger point is that fallen human beings consistently think they know better than God. So they blow off and reduce and revise and edit what God says in his word. And they do what is right in their own eyes. So they exchange what God would call the natural, his way of creating, for the unnatural, which is human revision. This is a huge act of pride and arrogance against God, and God's response is to act in justice and wrath. To rebel against God as creators, to live like what God says in his word doesn't matter, and to do so brings wrath. Also, to turn from the living living the way that God wants us, does not bring people into life. It brings people into depravity and death. We have to be careful not to make God or his ways into what we feel is best for us, but rather we have to trust that this book was written miraculously by the Spirit of God. And everything he wanted in this book is in this book. And this book has to become the authority for the Christian believer, 
for the follower of Jesus Christ. His word is what is best for us. This is the best way to live, and we have to trust that above our feelings, above our desires, above what our culture says. God's word has to be our authority. That's what the Bible teaches us. Tim Keller has this amazing quote that I see is so true. He says, contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for the things they can't accept. But Christians have to reverse that. Allowing the Bible to examine us looking for the things in us that God can't accept. That's the Christian life. That's following Jesus. We are tempted to do that all the time. We are tempted to look through this book and say, mm, I don't really like that. That's not where our culture is going and that's irrelevant. Uh, I don't like that either. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide what I'm going to pick and choose here. Instead, the calling of a Christian is to say, God, this word is above everything in my life, my heart, my mind, my world I live in, my culture. And I'm going to submit to this book. And I'm going to believe what this book says. And I'm going to work hard to study it, to know it, to look at the culture and contextualize this and figure this out. But this book is the ultimate standard. And if there's anything in my heart that's wanting to change you or reject your ways, Holy Spirit, through this book, pull that out of my heart that I can repent and not be under the wrath of God. Humans apart from God are exchanging his ways for their own. And it continues, look at verses 28 to 32. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over, there it is again, to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. This is the results of people taking and revising what God said and ignoring it. And so then he goes on, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. More of the bad news. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, and they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also prove of those who practice them. People willfully giving themselves to sin and blowing off God act like there's safety in numbers. They live in sin, they applaud the sin, and then they recruit others to join in the sin. Every sin has a root of pride and arrogance. So that takes us back to our question, what in the world is causing God's wrath? The pride and arrogance of human beings ignoring God and his ways. We have to know the bad news to know the good news. And God saw that state. He saw that human beings turned their back on God and they lived their own way and he loved human creation so much he did something about it. He sent his son Jesus Christ who lived opposite of that. He had no pride and no arrogance and he lived the way God called us to live and he went to a cross. And on the cross, this wrath of God pouring out that has to happen because he's holy and just for the sins of people who have turned their back on God. This wrath 
of God was now directed towards Jesus on the cross. He took the wrath that, human, that was due humankind for them turning their back on God. And to all who believe and turn to him, they can be forgiven and have new life. You see, knowing the bad news sets us up for the greatest news a human being could ever hear. Knowing the bad news now is an act of grace because it offers us a course of correction before it's too late when Jesus comes again. Look at chapter 2. It says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Again, the minute we say this is about someone else, we have to be careful. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, as for people who reject Christ, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It doesn't matter your background. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 2 to say it doesn't matter your religious background, whether you're a Jewish Christian or a new Christian that wasn't Jewish and had no religious upbringing, all human beings are guilty before God because of sin. So our final question as we close, what do we do now? This verse clearly tells us that all humanity apart from God are under God's wrath. We are sinners by choice and by nature. No one can escape God's wrath in their own human efforts, in their own achievements. And God's wrath ultimately will be eternal conscious punishment separated from him in hell. This is what awaits every human being that does not give their life to Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible and the gospel says. And this is the groundwork Paul is building here. But even in this truth of the bad news, he's interweaving gospel grace. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, do you not realize that God's kindness is intended to bring you to repentance? That God in his kindness, when he sees us in this rebellious state, sent his son he says, I love you. He says, I will forgive you. I will pour mercy on you. That is intended to lead you to this place of repentance and turn back to God. Just being honest, a scary thing awaits those who say, no, I'm never going to do that. 
It's in verse 5. It says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. I've had people who live far from Christ and say, I don't need Jesus. My life's going just fine. I'll live however I want. Nothing bad's happening. Such a person, according to this, is storing up wrath. You don't want to do that. Come to Jesus. These verses today make it the case that all stand guilty before God. Even our most religious moment is not good enough in order to escape God's wrath now and in the future. We must have sinless perfection. That's the standard. Sinless perfection. But like I said, we don't measure up to that. Because none of us have sinless perfection. That disqualifies all of us. We need someone in who's, who's perfect in righteousness to stand in our place at the judgment seat. We need someone who's perfect, who can save us from the wrath of God, to stand in our place when we meet our maker. And that someone is Jesus Christ. That's what a savior is. We need one who saves us from the penalty of sin, who's saving us from the power of sin, and who will save us from the presence of sin forever. Who is the Savior? Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the only way to eternal life. And on this Memorial Day weekend, when we rightly so honor those who have died for the freedoms in our country, we need to remember that there's one who died for something even greater died for the state of our souls in eternity. And that was Jesus Christ who gives us freedom from sin and death. So what do we do? As verse 4 says, we let his kindness lead us to repentance. We escape the wrath of God by repenting. By coming before him today and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I recognize my way of thinking and my way of doing isn't enough and I need you. So I surrender myself to you. I ask forgiveness and I ask that you come into my life and the rest of my days I want to live in humble obedience to you. There's a Christian pastor and author who wrote this. He said, I can't live Jesus' life and Jesus knows that. But Jesus says to me, if you ask me, I will come and live my life in you. I'll give you a picture of what this means, he says. My wife and I were in a part of the country where we'd never been before, and we were going to be driving on some obscure back road, so we got a rental car. And the guy at the counter said to me, along with this car, if you want, you can also get a GPS system. He said, have you ever heard or used a GPS system? This is before the days where we kept one in our pocket all the time. He says, you plug it in and punch in your destination and a woman's voice will tell you how to get wherever it is you want to go. Well, when the guy at the counter asked if I wanted one, I immediately responded, no, because I know it was going to cost something and I don't need that. I can find where I'm going without that thing. Anybody want to guess what my wife weighed in with? Get the GPS. So we got the GPS. Here's the deal. You can get the box, plug it in, you have the lady in the car, but that doesn't mean you trust her. If you trust her, what do you do? You do what she says. You go where she tells you to go. She says, turn left, you turn left. 
If you trust her and she says turn left, but in your heart you're thinking, ah, I don't know, I think I should be turning right. Then you remember there's a way that seems right to a person, but will lead to death, so therefore I'll go left. To follow Jesus means I will do what he says. I will mess up a lot. I'm going to need his power. I know that. But I form the intention. I say to him, God, with your help as best as I can, I will do what you say. I give you my life, my time, and my obedience. Here's the thing. If that's not your settled intention, then it's best to be honest about it. If that is not your settled intention, then whatever else you might be, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're an admirer, maybe, but he's looking for followers and disciples. He's looking for someone who will say, all right, God, I'll surrender my life and I'll trust everything you say. There's something else you need to know about him, something that's also true when dealing with a GPS system. At one point, we were driving in this car and I was quite sure the lady in the box was wrong. She said, go left, and I didn't go left. I went right because I knew she was wrong. Then as an interesting response, she said, recalculating route, when safe to do so, execute a U-turn. I knew she was wrong, so I unplugged her. That's the beauty of that little box. You could just unplug it. I was as lost as I ever was in my life, and my wife enjoyed that immensely. <laughs> so we plugged the lady back in. And you know what she said when I plugged her back in? She said, I told you, you fool. Why didn't you listen to me? You think you can go, I'm going to help you now? No, you rejected me. Just try to find yourself home by yourself. I'm done. No, she didn't say that. She said, recalculating route, when safe to do so, execute a U-turn. That's grace. As soon as you're ready to listen, as soon as you're ready to surrender, God will say, here is the way home. Execute a U-turn. That's repentance. I'll bring you home. That's grace. That's Jesus. He is the only one with the authoritative wisdom about how we are to live. He is the only one who brings about the possibility of forgiveness of your sin and mine. He is the only one to give any kind of realistic hope in conquering death and life beyond the grave. Why would you not give your full devotion to Jesus? He does not present himself as a good spiritual teacher to be admired from a distance. He presents himself as a master, as a lord, as the one to be followed and served and obeyed and worship, there is no other way. He is it. I encourage all of us to surrender and follow Jesus, to turn to him. Let's pray.